The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Be it superstition or just an apparition, you suddenly appear inside my heart. Does this strange romance stand Welcome to From the Bleachers. I'm your host, as always, Seamus Clancy, coming to you from the wonderful Bleeding Green Nation Radio Podcast Network. Now, I'm sure by the time you've heard this, maybe Carson Wentz has been traded, but for right now, I will not be talking about Carson Wentz or any moves the Eagles are currently making today. I'm here talking with Bradford Pearson, who had just released last month, a few weeks back, a book entitled the Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration, and resistance in World War II America. Brad, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Seamus. I really appreciate it. Of course. I uh, just read through the book over the weekend. Loved it, especially we're in a little football lull here. Obviously, there's always exciting and insane things going on in Eagles land, but with the Super Bowl just passing and recording this Tuesday afternoon on Sunday, the NFL draft not kicking off to April. If you need something great to read right now, I've talked about uh, in the fall some of my escapist delights to cope with such a disastrous Eagle season as we we just watched. But for now, this is something I'd recommend. Bradford, obviously reading this, it's not just a story about football, but a historical tome to a degree to the history of Japanese Americans in this country at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. How did this come about? What is your background that brought you to something with this amount of depth? Yeah. So I came to this story, the first time I came across the story of the Heart Mountain Eagles was in 2013. I was actually, I was on a freelance assignment. So I'm a a journalist. I used to be the Features editor at Southwest In-Flight Magazine, and I've worked for a couple different city magazines in the country. And I was working on a freelance story for this magazine called Cowboys and Indians. It's the magazine of the West. It's based in Dallas. And they sent me up to Wyoming to write a story about Yellowstone. And one day I was there, and I was with a small group, and and somebody who was leading the tour said, hey, let's go check out you know the old Heart Mountain Relocation Center. They have a museum there, and uh, it, it's really interesting. And, and, and I knew basically what everybody in America learns a little bit in high school, which is, you know, during World War II, we incarcerated 120 Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor. And that's pretty much all you know, right? You know that this thing happened and that probably shouldn't have happened. But then when I got there, 
I was pretty blown away by all the information that I learned. And I walked out fairly embarrassed by how little I actually knew about this period of history. But there was one small thing in the museum that really stuck with me and that there was a line there about how the camp had a high school football team and how the high school football team blew away all the competition in Wyoming and, and Southern Montana during these years that the camp was open. And that sort of stuck with me. You know, it's one of those things as a reporter, you hear little tidbits like that and you know, you should always work on the stories that you can't get out of your head. And this was one that stuck in my head for years before I really started working on it. And, uh, and then it sort of just steamrolled into going from a nugget of an idea in my head to 300,000 or, you know, not, not 300,000, 300 pages of book, which I'm still <laughs> pretty uh, surprised actually came out. One thing that really struck me here is that we don't think of American football as an international game. Yes, there's been the World Football League before, there's a Canadian Football League, but it's not soccer or football. It's not basketball. It's none of these things. And the way that these Japanese Americans, some of them first generation, you know, we have different terms that you use in the book for uh, the lineage of Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants to the country, that maybe not necessarily in in the 1940s, 1930s, but today we think of American football as sort of the pinnacle or the, the thing that's most in the zeitgeist or the most talked about element of American culture is the National Football League and football overall. So the fact that these high schoolers were dealing with an incarceration that, you know, in the nearly, what are we, 80-ish years since then, still really don't talk about enough or don't realize the depth of what occurred during that period and how long lasting or how much buildup there actually was to these sanctions and regulations against Japanese and overall Asian immigrants and their successive children in this country. But these people that were looked down upon as less than American, as spies or unpatriotic or wanting to be put into these camps for the sense of, you know, they don't fit our ideals of what Americans are. To excel at the game of football is, in a way, maybe one of the most American things possible for someone to do. Yeah, that yeah, and that's you sort of hit the nail on the head there as to what I found so interesting about this story is that, you know, as you know, white Americans, we've sort of if we think about Japanese Americans in any sport, we tend to think of them as in in baseball, right? And a lot of that reason is because baseball sort of came up in Japan at the same time as it did in America. So as baseball was growing as, quote, America's pastime, it was growing on this parallel track in Japan. So when these Japanese immigrants came to the United States, there wasn't really a learning curve for baseball. They could just be good baseball players. Like they were, you know, withheld from local leagues and things like that because of racism, but it wasn't because they didn't know how to play the sport, you know. Um, But with football, like you said, it it was sort of this completely new game. So these guys show up, you know, the first generation of Japanese immigrants really starts to come into the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century. And pretty quickly on the West Coast, these dudes, uh, you know, a lot of them were single. Most of them were single that came over and didn't really have much to do. You know, they worked their asses off all day. And then on the weekend, 
they formed these teams and started forming these football teams in San Francisco and Vancouver and Seattle, and they would play teams of Chinese immigrants. And then as their kids started becoming uh, older, they were, you know, their children were born here in America. They were Americans. And football was really sort of that last entryway of sports into, you know, what we sort of consider the, you know, the, the top tier of, of American athletics. So in the 30s and 40s, you start seeing some of these high schoolers start to play on teams in, in the LA area and in San Francisco and in the area we now think of as Silicon Valley. And that was, you know, they started trickling in and it was still sort of a rarity at that point to have a Japanese American player on a high school football team. But, but they really started, you know, one player here, two players there, and then not to give too much away, but then when these kids are ripped from their homes on the West coast and sent to this camp in Wyoming in 1942, they, you know, only three kids at the camp in high school had ever played high school football before. And they get this opportunity, this coach, um, a white coach, started scheduling games with local high schools. And then it was basically like, okay, we got these games scheduled. Now we got to teach all these kids how to play football. So, you know, it's pretty incredible how good they were on, on just because of the fact that they lived in these terrible barracks and were behind barbed wire. But I think it's incredible that, you know, 40 kids try out for football that first year and uh, the first season in 1943, and only three of them had ever played high school football before. And then they just start stomping teams pretty quickly. Yeah. Other than the, as we discussed, the, the racial elements of the development of the game, I was even struck by how big the game had seemed on the West Coast of the United States in the 1930s and 40s. You know, they say, you know, the legend is that Rutgers and Princeton played the first college football game or the first formal football, American football game and, you know, in the late 1890s. And then we have the building up of these Ivy League programs in the Northeast United States, your Yales, your Harvards, your Princetons, your Penns. And then, you know, as the 20th century kicks on, then you have the development in the Midwest. Obviously, this is when Notre Dame becomes sort of a national powerhouse, a national brand, yet continues to this day, even though they may not have the success in any capacity the way they had, you know, at this point, literally 100 years ago. But the development at even these lower levels, these high school, these barnstorming-esque teams in that period was something I had no knowledge about. Yeah, that that was a really cool thing to learn about too, because you know I grew up in New York, so like you have such sort of you know they always talk about the East Coast bias when it comes to like the AP polls or whatever in college yeah. football. But you know, like you said, like even our own knowledge of that history is pretty East Coast based. Like going through this book, you see how much like how good colleges like St. Mary's were at football, or San Jose State, or Mary Hardin, or Willamette College in Oregon. Like you have all of these schools. That now we don't even consider, you know, St. Mary's doesn't have a program or Willamette, if they do, it's, you know, small. And these junior college, you know, every junior college out on the West Coast had uh, had huge football teams. It was, it was you know, basically you would go play juco ball for a couple of years in football and that still exists. But the extent that it did back then is was, was pretty incredible when I was doing the research on this because so much of the book is based – in California and and up and down the West Coast, that when I was writing, I really felt like I had to learn a lot about 
you know, LA in general, but then also the culture, Japanese American culture, but then also what the sports culture was in that in that world and the Japanese American sports culture. And in Los Angeles specifically, they had a whole athletic leagues, you know, just like, you know, we have CYO and stuff here on the East Coast, but back in the 30s and 40s in LA, they had whole leagues just for Japanese Americans, the Nisei Athletic Union. And they had baseball, softball, basketball. And then later on, they started having full football leagues, uh, weightlifting, swimming, track. And there were just these incredible competitions among just Japanese American athletes that really produced some incredible players in those sports. And the kids that were at the top of those leagues Eventually, you know, the, one of the main characters in my book is a guy named Babe Namora, and he eventually got to the top of that league and basically said, "Okay, I gotta, I gotta, I, I gotta go play high school football here in LA to really prove myself as the athlete that I think I am, and you know, my community seems to, to seems to know I am." So that was it was it was really interesting to to look through that history. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. In the process of writing the book, did you have to end up traveling to the West Coast to do some of this research? Yeah, uh, I was in Wyoming four times, and I went to L.A. a couple times, too. Um yeah, Wyoming's. I, I mean, I went to Wyoming in the summer, so uh, so that made it a little bit easier. But it was, you know, I, I'd been to LA a bunch for work for other things. But so much of this book and so much of the history of this book takes place in Los Angeles before the war and and during the war. So I spent a lot of time there, whether it was in Hollywood or in Little Tokyo. Uh, I went out to Santa Anita Racetrack, where a lot of Japanese Americans were first held before they went to the the more permanent camps across the West. So I actually, this doesn't get in the book because I, I didn't use any first person, but I remember there was, there was one day where I knew that I had to go, I wanted to go to Santa Anita racetrack and, and see where all these folks have been held because they, I get into it a little bit in the book, but when they first go to Santa Anita, a lot of the Japanese Americans are held in the horse stalls, in the stables. So I knew that I really wanted to, I, I just knew I had to go see those stables, but I also knew that they weren't going to let me into these stables just by walking in with a, a ticket to Santa Anita. So I parked my car like a mile away and walked in and kind of hopped the fence and just pretended. I, I remember I wore my work boots and jeans and a t-shirt and just kind of like 
put my head down and just walked into the stalls area where I kept all the horse, keep all the racehorses. So, you know, you go through there and you see horses living in the same stables that our fellow Americans were in, in the spring and summer of 1942. And, you know, it stinks. It, it, it absolutely stinks. It smells like horse. It smells like urine. It smells like feces and old straw. And you just think that this is where we put our fellow Americans. Um, so that was, yeah. So I did some LA reporting and then every year in Wyoming, the site of the former camp has a reunion for people who are either former incarcerees who are incarcerated at Heart Mountain and their families. So I've been going to that for the last couple of years too. Um, first, you know, to sort of meet sources and, and find families, but they also have an archives out there at the museum. So I spent a lot of time in the archive and then just a lot of time meeting folks, meeting Japanese Americans out there who had been incarcerated and just learning about the community and learning about Wyoming, you know, what Northwest, just sort of how desolate Northwest Wyoming can be. Um, especially if you grew up in, in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, and you get sent to a, a camp in the middle of the high desert. The breadth of the historical elements here, not specific to football, but the overall Japanese race relationships here. When you're in your you know American history class in high school, there is obviously an emphasis on racial history in this country. But the idea of, again, Japanese incarceration or the interactions between Asians and Asian Americans and immigrants into this country is certainly something that's way overlooked. Mm -hmm. How far did you dig for some of this information? Because it's something that I obviously had really no clue about this, you know, the history, whether it's in, you know, dealing with the mayor of San Francisco or, or Los Angeles to the, you know, Woodrow Wilson and Roosevelt administrations, you know, how did you get into this information Obviously, it's so long ago at this point, so I don't even know how much concrete interviewing gave you the greatest sense of info. Are you looking at primary source material? You know, to what extent did this kind of consume you in this reporting? Yeah, so that was that was something when I went into write the book writing process that I didn't anticipate spending as much time on as I ended up spending, but I basically ended up. Like you said, like, you know, we learned so much, so little of this in high school. Like I started thinking back on it and you think, okay, when you're in high school, you learn about Japanese American incarceration, that what we usually and typically in America call Japanese internment. And then maybe you learn about the Chinese Exclusion Act in, you know, after the, after the railroads are finished. And those are really the two only things you really talk about when you talk about Asian American history. So when I started writing this book, I realized that I could take this story of this football team, this these Heart Mountain Eagles, these kids that, despite everything, sort of band together and kick a ton of ass in Wyoming. But I could also use their story to tell the broader story of, of Japanese American life in the United States. So what a lot of that was, was as soon as I got my book deal, I just read. I read for months, man. And it was just like, I knew that I wouldn't be able to authoritatively write the book if I didn't have all this history ingrained in my brain. Like I knew that, like if you look at the back of the book, like the last hundred pages of the book are all footnotes. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's like, but the thing is that like, I knew that I had to write the book having the information in my head. Like I couldn't be constantly 
checking couldn't constantly be like having books flipped open because then I would, then it wouldn't have read well. It would have read like a book report, you know? So I knew that I had to read all these books and sort of internalize them and take this history. And in those months, you know, people spend their careers, you know, decades writing about this and learning about this. But I knew that I had a few months to sort of cram as much history as I could into my head. And a lot of that was books about Japanese American culture, but it was also books about agriculture, sports, immigration, race relations, books just on Los Angeles, books on Japanese American life. And it was, you know, books about Seattle or fruit or Wyoming. I've read so many books about Wyoming that I ended up, you know, it's it ends up being a paragraph here and a paragraph there. But I really wanted to know that personally that I was up to the task of writing this and that I had all this information in my head. Like I'm sitting behind me right now, like I'm looking, there's a book like about the uh, geology of Northwest Wyoming, because I knew that I wanted to talk about that because of how dusty and desolate and rocky this place that they got dropped was. So I was like, okay, let me read up as much as I can about this geology. And it ends up being the opening of one chapter. So it ends up probably being like 500 words here or there. Uh, But it was something that I I knew I wanted to focus on because this was the first thing that these folks saw when they got off the train in Wyoming was this huge mountain sitting in front of them that was the strangest looking mountain and is one of the strangest geological conundrums in world history. It's basically this mountain, Hart Mountain, is inverted. Like the rock on the top is older than the rock on the bottom. And people have been trying to figure this out for decades as to why this is. And it just seemed like one of those weird little things where I was like, this is the first thing these people see when they get off the train. I need to learn as much as I can about this to sort of understand what they were seeing when they got off the train. If you had to guess, how many books did you read to prepare for this writing? Oh, man. Uh, dozens. I mean, probably. So so I read, would read dozens of books, but then also at the camp, there was a weekly newspaper called the Heart Mountain Sentinel. And, you know, the thing you have to remember when we talk about these camps is that they were huge. At at its peak, Heart Mountain, the Heart Mountain camp had almost 12,000 people. It was the third largest city in Wyoming at the time when it was open because Wyoming was so um, lightly populated. So it had this really great newspaper that served those 12,000 people. And they had a newspaper every week, once a week for the, the over three years that the camp existed. And I read every single one of those from front to back. So you have this, you know, I have dozens of books that I read, but then I would also sit there for days and days and just read this weekly newspaper. So I got a sense of what the rhythm of camp life was like, or I got a sense of who was coming, who was going. And that was where most of the sports, that was where most of the um, play-by-play in the book comes from, is that this camp, they loved sports and, you know, Japanese American life at that point was really revolved around sports. And it was sort of the one thing they had in camp that kept them motivated and, and kept them interested in something that was, you know, could sort of distract them from the fact that they were thousand miles from home behind barbed wire. So the, the camp newspaper had a really well-staffed sports section. And every week that the team would have a game, they would have, a preview of the team that was coming, a a play-by-play of the last week's game, a column, you know, sort of excoriating the team for how well, you know, for their slight mistakes that they had made in the previous week's game, and then full box scores uh, from last week's game. So that was really helpful in terms of being able to 
sketch out how all these games went on a play-by-play basis that I would have never been able to do without the fact that this newspaper existed. In the t- title, even, and certainly throughout the entirety of the book, you say the term incarceration when it applies to these Japanese Americans and, and Japanese people that were taken into these you know, camps throughout the country and specifically here in Wyoming. As you said earlier, too, that you know historically in your classic American history class, we've always heard the term internment. Why throughout this, and I know you explained it in the book, but I wanted to explain it to the, the listeners. Why did you use the term incarceration as opposed to internment? Yeah, it's it's something that even when I first started working on this book, I, I didn't use. I used internment. And if you look at like my book proposal, it's internment throughout there. But as I got more and more into the research of the book and became closer and became friends with a lot of folks in the Japanese American community, it became clear to me that the term internment was used in hindsight. You know, back in the 50s, when people started writing more about this period of time, it started being used to sort of be this all-encompassing term as to what happened to uh, Japanese Americans and, and their and their parents in this time. And there's sort of a legal argument there that about what internment actually means in terms of whether it's enemy aliens or and things like that. But what it really does is it kind of diminishes what happened to you know these 120,000 Americans. And incarceration is still sort of an imperfect term because it implies that there was some sort of wrong, that they had been jailed for a wrong, when that's it couldn't be further from the truth. There was never any uh, there were never any Japanese Americans or uh, Japanese here who were convicted of sabotage or espionage or spying during the war. So, but the Japanese American community really focuses and uses the term Japanese American incarceration because it's a more accurate term as to what happened. Um, and people will also notice that at the beginning, and, and I don't use it too much, but I u- also use the term concentration camp, which was the term that was used during the 30s and 40s to describe these kinds of camps. Roosevelt described them as concentration camps. They were described in newspapers across the country while they were open as concentration camps. And it was only until after the war when the term concentration camp became synonymous with extermination camps in in Germany and Poland and across Europe that that term sort of fell out of favor. And I don't mean to, you know, no one in the Japanese American community to this day compares the treatment of, of what happened in those extermination camps to the camps in the United States. There's certainly some similarities, but to the extent of, of what happened, no one, no one claims that. But the term concentration camp really is a much more accurate term than an internment camp. So I use that a little bit at the beginning of the book, and then I mostly just call it incarceration or just call them camps. Bradford, how can readers find this book? Oh, you can find it uh, pretty much everywhere. It's great. Uh, it's you know you can find it on Amazon if that's your preferred bookseller. But I know the the every Barnes and Noble in the Philadelphia and South Jersey area has this uh, available. I think at most Barnes and Nobles across the country, it's available, which is pretty surreal to say. Um, I also know Shakespeare and, Shakespeare and Company has it in Rittenhouse and some other booksellers around town have it. Um, you could also, there's also two places that I want to shout out that would uh, love for you to buy it from, which is the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles and the Heart Mountain Interpretive Center in Wyoming, which is where I did most of my research for this book. And they have a great bookstore there and they will ship it to you wherever you are. I know that we've sold out 
that store a couple of times already. So I'd love to give them some awesome. Uh, some, some, yeah. Love it. Brad, love the book. And for your listeners out there, if you're, if you're listening to this, I would definitely recommend it here. Again, we talked about earlier, you know, as in a joking way, you know, the way the off season is a bit of a lull for football fans, but just as speaking as someone who obviously loves the game of football for, if you're just coming in from that background, it's certainly worth a read on the, the growth of the game in the United States in the 20th century, but on a much more larger scale, it's an intimate look at an element of race relations that are underplayed in America's history, especially when we look at the World War II era as America kind of taking over the big bads of the world, whereas there were still you know, terrible things going on with this country itself. So whether you're a football fan or just someone who wants to know more about the history of American culture, American politics, and what people in this country have dealt with for, you know, centuries here, well worth a pickup, well worth a read. Thanks, Seamus. Yeah, I loved it. Okay, how can they find you? Our great listeners find you on social media to keep you updated with this book or anything else going on in your world. Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter and that's at Bradford Pearson. So pretty simple. Love it. Keep it simple, right? Someone has the yeah. username at Seamus and they like never tweet. And I've tweeted at the person incessantly for like a decade for them to give me the name. They never will. But Bradford, again, thank you so much for coming on. As for your listeners, I'm sure you will have something in the week later from BGN Radio or anyone else detailing anything going on with the Eagles and Carson Wentz. And surely in the next few days or within the next week at the very least, I will be on here talking about that. But again, from the Bleachers, I'm your host, James Clancy. Bradford Pierce is coming on. The, the Eagles of Heart Mountain. I will tweet out the link to this uh, when the podcast gets published. But again, thank you for listening. Go Birds. G and